Lord, we are here underneath your word, underneath your revelation. Father, it is your word through which we, you reveal everything. You reveal yourself to us and your heart to us and our heart to ourselves. Father, what Abraham is doing in, in today's verses, it reveals his weakness as well as your grace and mercy. I pray may the Holy Spirit come and testify of Jesus Christ, of his justice and mercy. And as we listen to these words, may these words redefine how we see ourselves, redefine how we see our lives, redefine how we see you. All these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So before we begin, before we begin, can, we do me a, can you do me a huge favor? Because I totally forgot in my old man mind. Can all of you, with your Bibles on your phone or tablet or your actual physical Bible, if you have an actual physical Bible, you're my favorite, turn to Hebrews chapter 11. We're not going to turn there right now, but Hebrews chapter 11 is a very important chapter that we're going to study together with today's passage. Hebrews chapter 11. We're not going to read it right now. I just want you to like place it there so when we talk about it, you'll, you'll, be, ready to, you, you'll be ready and available. All right, everyone found it? Yeah? Hebrews chapter 11? This left side is all ready. Right side, you guys, you guys can be faster. All right, good. Hebrews chapter 11. All right, let's go. So we're starting our sermon, and um, today, I think it is the last day, last Sunday, we're going to talk about Abraham. In fact, this is the last Sunday that we're going to talk about Genesis for a while, right? Um, and beginning in two Sundays from now, next week, Pastor Eugene has a special sermon for us. Um, I, I, I hope he does. And the week after, we're going to start a new series on the Sermon on the Mount. I'm very excited about that. So today, we're concluding our study in Genesis and in Abraham specifically. Right? So, so we're at the end of Abraham, our study in Abraham. And like all things, have, good things have come to an end. So when we, as we are studying about the, you know, the last, the big test that Abraham has to go through, I think it's an important thing to revisit from the beginning when we start talking about Abraham, like three, four months ago. So why did I decide to study you know, Abraham's life? And the reason I decided to choose to study Abraham's life together is because Abraham's life shows us what faith is. Abraham's life defines what faith is, what living faith looks like. Um, when, people talk, when people use the word faith, different people have different definitions. Right? But we've got to know what the Bible talks about what faith is. And Abraham's life shows us what biblical faith looks like. Right? So let's talk about how Abraham was. Let's talk about Abraham's faith. How was Abraham's faith started? How did Abraham get his faith? Abraham got his faith because God called Abraham. His name was Abram before, but when he was Abram, God called him. When he was 70 years old. Remember Abraham, what was Abraham doing when he was 70, 70 years old? He was living in the land called Ur of the Chaldeans. And I don't know whether you remember, but Ur of the Chaldeans was a very pop, heavily populated, very modern, modern of the ancient cities. Right? Abraham lived with his father and his brothers and their wives and his wife and their children. Right? Abraham came from a clan. Right? Like, like so many people back then, their family was the clan. 
Um, they were pretty successful, what we can see. And Abraham's family was uh, uh, worship the deity, were, were moon-worshipping deities. People during the early Chaldeans, a lot of people worshipped the moon because they thought the moon was responsible for fertility and, 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 and prosperity in this world. So Abraham and his family, the entire family, were moon-worshipping people when, they were, when Abraham was 70 years old. So there's no evidence, right, in any of the place of Genesis that give us any inclination that Abraham was interested in things of God. For 70 years of his life, Abraham had zero interest. In fact, he was ignorant of who God was, right? And, and that is, you know, and that is the state of, you know, most people out there, right? So um, some of us, right, work with fellow Christians. One sister tells me, like, she works with a group of Christians, and every day they have Bible study together at work. Isn't that wonderful? Having Bible study with coworkers, right? Um, other, of, other people, other, other, some of you, work together in the same building, 1775 Tyson Boulevard. Yeah? Where are my 1775 Tyson Boulevard people? They're not here. Mm -mm. There's like five, four or five of you who work in the same building, and maybe you guys run into each other, and it's a good opportunity for you to encourage one another at work, right? And so some of, like, they are kind of, kind of, like, they have Christians in their building. For me, in my place of work, um, there is, I mean, there's me and this other person who's a Christian, and that, that's about it, right? And so I work with unbelievers, like, every 10 hours, 10, 11 hours a day. By the way, they're listening to this now. They discovered my sermon online, and they're starting listening to this. So, hi, guys, right? So like, you work with unbelievers, and I love them, and they're, they're good people. They're smart people. I love hanging out with them. And we talk about God with them. But if you live with unbelievers, you know, even though they, the idea of God may intrigue them from time to time, they don't really, it's not really important to them, right? And it's not a judgment thing, it's just a matter of fact. It's not, it's not really important to them, right? But for us, gathered in this room, God is not just a religious concept. He's someone that is very real. He's someone that is affecting you and changing you and blessing you. That you really do have this great sense of his love and companionship in your life. So what is the difference between you and the unbeliever? The difference is, it's the call of God. God called you. Out of, out of this life of ignorance, ignorant towards him, and he opened your eyes to see him. He has called you. And that's exactly what's happening to Abraham. Seven years of his life, he, was, he didn't care about God. But on his 70th year, when he was 70, God called him. Remember Genesis chapter 12, he says, Abraham. Leave your home, leave your father's household, and go to the land that I will show you. For I will make you into a great nation. All the nations will be blessed through you. I will curse those who curse you. I will bless those who bless you. Abraham, follow me. Abraham hears God's call. Abraham follows. That's the nature of, that's the biblical definition of faith. You hear the call of God, and you follow. 
Once again, it isn't something that Abraham had generated by himself. It is God's supernatural calling. When God calls his people, his people listen and they follow. That's what happened to Abraham. Let's specifically look about, let's specifically look about you know, the type of faith, the Abraham's faith, right? With the anatomy of Abraham's faith. That's when we have to turn to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. What does it say? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 defines what faith is, right? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. This is one of those famous verses that you need to memorize, right? And this is what it says. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, definition of faith. Faith is an assurance of things hoped for and conviction of things unseen. What is faith? Faith is an assurance of things hoped for and conviction of, of things unseen. Let's, let's talk about this. What does it mean to be assured of the things that hope for? The word hope for here means something that hasn't happened in the future, right? When you hope for something, it hasn't happened in the future, right? I hope to go to, I don't know, Hawaii one day, right? I've never been to Hawaii. You guys have been to Hawaii because you're rich, but me, being a poor pastor, never been to Hawaii, right? So one day I hope to go to Hawaii. It, has, it hasn't happened yet for me, but I hope to go there. Hope is something that's happening in the future. But faith, right? Un unlike my dream for Hawaii, which I may or may not go, it's an assurance of things that are hoped for, which means you are absolutely assured the things that you hope for will actually happen. That's what faith is. You are absolutely sure, just like I'm sure that I'm going to work tomorrow, just like I'm absolutely sure after you know, our service tomorrow, uh, after our you know, service today, I'm going to go to Taco Bell, because I go to Taco Bell almost every Sunday, just as I'm sure I'm going to be in a certain place. Biblical hope is that assurance that one day what you hope for is going to happen. The hope of the assurance of the Christian is one day for absolutely sure that we will be with the Lord and our bodies and our spirits will be renewed. And the Lord will see us and he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. And one day we will see before him, he will smile at us, he will accept us, and we will live in glory. That's the assurance of a Christian. One day we will be that way, go to, go to that place. That's what faith is. Assurance of things that are hoped for. Abraham, when God called him, was absolutely assured that what God promised him to, to make him into a great nation, to bless the world through his family, he was absolutely sure that was going to happen. That he was willing to leave his, everything behind and follow him. Second definition of faith. Conviction of things unseen. Even though you, what, what does this mean? Even though you may not see things, you're absolutely sure that the things that you do not see, it's true. In verse 3, let's look at verse 3 in, in, in Hebrews chapter 11. In verse 3, it says, By faith we understand that the universe was formed by God's command. What, what the Hebrews writer is saying here is, even though we cannot see God making things or sustaining things, by faith we know that He made all things. Even though we cannot see Him making things, sustaining things, by faith we're absolutely sure that He made these things. 
I'll give you an example. So one of my brothers here, I love him. I, I hear a lot of good testimonies here in this church. And the testimony that moved me was one of the brothers here. I'm not gonna like you know name. I'm not gonna call him out because you know I'm not supposed to do that. But my, this brother went to Hawaii for his honeymoon, I think, right? He went to Hawaii for his honeymoon, right? And he, he, he said, when he went to Hawaii, he looked at the wonder and glory of God's creation, and he started crying. He started tearing up because the glory, because God's creation was so glorious. All the people in that beach, he didn't tell me, but I'm pretty sure other people in Hawaii, they were busy, I don't know, eating spam and catching fish. I don't know what they, what they do in Hawaii. I've never been there, right? They were busy snorkeling or something, or, you know, go to a luau. I don't know what, you know, but like they were busy entertaining themselves. But to my brother, he saw the glory of God's creation and says, God did that. That's what the Hebrew writer is talking about. My brother is absolutely sure, even though he could not see that God created that beach in Hawaii. Unbelievers can't see that. Another one, one of my favorite brothers, like, in, I love my brother here. We talk about how the world, the universe is created in information. Everything in existence, it's all about information, right? And we talk about how God is a great coder, like, you know, like the computer programmer. God is a great man. God is a coder. He coded all the information. And we are the product of his coding. And when I, listen, when I talk to him about that, I start tearing up. It's kind of nerdy. But it's true, because we know that God created all the information in our bodies and everything around us. God is a creator of things. Can we see our code? We can't see it. But we know it's true. We're absolutely sure it's true. That's faith. God has called Abraham, I, leave and follow me. Abraham was really convicted. That even though he could not see God, that God meant what he said he would do. That's what faith is. Assurance of things hoped for and conviction of things unseen. Abraham had it. That's why the Hebrew writer says Abraham left everything to follow God. Two things happen when you have faith. First thing happens is the internal persuasion. God persuades you, right? That everything that you learn, everything about it is true. So the first thing that happens when you have faith is God persuades you the truth of who he is and truth of what he says. One of my favorite testimonies, I have a lot of favorite testimonies. Like one of the, during the, during the uh, baptism you know, interview, you know, it was the most non-emotional but blessed testimony I've ever heard. You know what he said? He said, you know, before Jesus, before coming here, I didn't, I didn't know God. But now I know God is true. It's simply everything that I learn and everything that I see is just true. There's no emotion to my testimony, Pastor Jay. Because it's just true. And you don't get emotional when it's true. To him, it's true. What I talk about, what we learn about, what he did, God is true. That's how you know you have faith. It's true. God is true. Second thing that happens, when you're persuaded of the truth of who God is, you act. You start obeying. You start following. 
you act. If we're not obeying God, if we're not moving towards what He says, it is because we're not convinced of the truth of what He says. If we're absolutely sure of what He says is true, we will move in His direction. Do you understand? Abraham was assured of the things he hoped for, convicted of the things unseen. He was persuaded by the veracity of God's claim, and therefore he acted, he moved. That was Abraham's faith. But as we studied for the last three or four months, those whom God has called, those whom God has given faith, God doesn't leave alone, does he? God doesn't leave, God, leave that person alone. God starts to become very active in that person's life. Look at Abraham. What, is, what does he do for Abraham? God blesses Abraham. He became rich. Not the fact that you're rich becomes your blessing. But one of the evidences of the fact that God is with, active in Abraham's life was he began to prosper. God blesses Abraham. God fights for Abraham. Remember when he tried to rescue Lot? 301 men versus an army of kings, or four, four, king, four king, kings of four kingdoms. God fights for Abraham, right? God was intimate with Abraham. Remember the promise that he made to Abraham? God said, break these animals to pieces. And he said, and God passed through them, and God says, if I don't honor my promise, I promise to destroy myself. Like those animals are broken to pieces, if I don't bless you, Abraham, I promise to destroy myself. God makes this pledge to Abraham. Fantastic. But that's not, those are the good things. But God also tests Abraham. Doesn't he? It wasn't all blessing, blessing, blessing. Contrary to what Joel Austin preaches, it's not all blessings, happy, happy, joy, joy, when, you, when, you be, when you're called by God. No, in fact, when you are called by God, the way you know that you are called by God is He leads you through testing. He tests you. That's how you know you belong to him. Because wait, he tests you. Right? How did God test Abraham? God sent him to this promised land. And then God allowed famine to happen in the promised land. What, is Abraham going to, what did Abraham do? Oh, famine. Sorry. God, forget your promises. I'm going to Egypt. The major mistakes in Abraham's life was because he failed God's test, right? God, when God, when you, when you are called by God, you go through unpleasant, dangerous, scary situations because he tests you. And today, scripture, Genesis chapter 22, is perhaps the most horrible test in all of the Bible. <clears throat> This is, this is one of those things where unbelievers are so offended. Unbelievers think the Bible is ridiculous because this passage that we're studying, Genesis chapter 22, is an example of why they think the Bible is so ridiculous. Because if you just read this 22 by itself without context, you think God is a great child abuser. Right? In fact, one of my paralegals, high paralegals who are listening to this, like, as I was told them I was going to like, talk about this, and amongst themselves, they said, they talk about how, how offensive this story is. Think about what God is asking Abraham to do. 
take your son, your only son, whom you love, and offer him as a sacrifice. Surely, the God of love can ask that from Abraham. Surely, the God who accepts everything can't ask that from Abraham, can he? Surely, Jesus, who's my best friend, cannot ask Abraham to do such a horrible thing, can he? But he did. Why? To test him. It says in verse 1, to test Abraham. Why did God do this? Why? I have a really bad answer when I was a kid. So like this Bible verse, this passage comes, comes out sometimes during Sunday schools and youth group. When I was in Sunday school, my Sunday school ta- teacher told me, right, God tests Abraham like this to, so that he, his, he was going to test, he was going to, he tested Abraham to see how much Abraham loved God. My Sunday school teacher told me, God, did, God asked Abraham to do this because he wanted, that God wanted to see how much he loved him, how much Abraham loved God. And my little PJ goes, okay. But if you think about it, does this sound right to you? Is God like an insecure girlfriend that is asking you to do all these crazy things to justify how you love her? Is God that insecure? If you love me, you'll do this. If you love me, you're going to not talk to your friends anymore. If you love me, you're going to buy me that bag. If you love me, is God, that, is God doing that? If you love me, Abraham, sacrifice your son. Is God asking Abraham to do that? No, he's not. That sounds ridiculous. Right? When I was in youth group, my, my, I'm sorry, when I was in college, my... my my Bible, my small group leader told me, God is asking Abraham to do this because God wanted to see if Abraham's going to obey him no matter what. Right? God is this taskmaster. God is testing Abraham. God is testing Abraham's willing to obey him. Does that sound right to you? God is asking Abraham to sacrifice his son just to see how obedient Abraham could be to his commands? Does that sound right to you? Why did, Abraham, why did God test Abraham this way? To, to know the answer, I think you've got to figure out what the Bible talks about, talks, what, what, how the Bible describes God's testing people. When God tests people, as I said before, but he doesn't, first of all, he doesn't test people to, 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 to know whether to, to, God doesn't test you to, so that God, God wants to know how strong you are. God doesn't test you to say, all right, I'm going to test you. Let me see how strong you are. That's not, that's not the purpose of God testing, right? Because God knows we're weak, we're weak, right? He doesn't have to test us to know that we're weak. We are, right? We fall, right? And God certainly doesn't test you to so much to test how worthy you are. We think if we, we, if we just kind of pass this test, then we're worthy. If we just fast for a week, then we're worthy. 
right? If we, if we give a certain money to the church, then we're worthy, right? God doesn't go, uh, test you to prove whether you're worthy or not. That's, the purpose of, that's not the purpose of God's test. So he doesn't prove, test you to see how strong you are, and he certainly doesn't test you to see whether you're worthy or not. Then why does God test you? He tests you, as Pastor Ujin so eloquently said during the, during, during the call to worship, to reveal things. The purpose of God's testing is to always to reveal. It is to reveal your weakness and his strength. It is also to reveal what you really believe in. Look, all of us have an idea, certain, all of, like Pastor Ujian so eloquently said, I'm quoting Pastor Ujian a lot today, right? Pastor Ujian says during the call of worship, we're, we're, we're self-righteous. We're, we're, did he say that? Or did I think that he said that? Anyway, whatever, I give him credit. Like, we're really bad at knowing where we are and who we are. We either have a really lofty vision of ourselves or we have a very low view of ourselves, right? We have a very, like, we have a we have very bad understanding of who we are. God used testing to reveal what you really are and what you really believe in. Example, Luke chapter 19, is it? The rich young ruler, right? The rich young ruler. The rich young ruler came to, the, came to Jesus and said, Hey, Jesus, how do, I get, how, do I inherit the king, how do I inherit the kingdom of God? Jesus, I have obeyed. And Jesus said, obey the, God, obey the commandments of God. And the rich young ruler said, that's good, because I obeyed all of God's commandments, right? I obeyed, I honored my parents, I didn't commit murder, like women are yucky, so I don't commit adultery. I did it all, Jesus. Does that mean that I can inherit the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, what? Sell your possessions and follow me. The rich young ruler goes, uh-oh. Jesus tests the young man by saying, leave your possessions and follow him. Before meeting Jesus, the rich young ruler thought he was righteous. But that one question from Jesus, it reveals what the guy truly believes in. He himself, at that moment, started to see what he really believed in. That's the nature of testing. Are you going through tests right now? I don't know what kind of testing you're going through, right? I'm pretty sure, looking at you, 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 you look tired and defeated and stuff, and I'm pretty sure there's certain things that you're going through. God allowed you to go through these things. First and foremost, to reveal what you really believe in. Right? Look, when I first came here, right? Oh, I preached my heart out. Right? People are gathering, right? People are like numerically growing, it was wonderful. And then what did God do? He starts taking people away. Right? What, uh, what, when they leave, what did that reveal about me? It revealed I like numbers. I like large. I don't like small. That's what it revealed to me. Even though I may preach the glory of God and all that stuff, my heart really wanted a large congregation. And God wasn't enough. You see how that works? The same, it happens over and over again. That's what God is doing. He's allowing you to go through testing to reveal what you really believe in. God allows testing to also to reveal your weakness and his strength. Right? Example, Judges chapter 7, right? Gideon. 
Gideon was one of the judges in the Old Testament, right? There wasn't a leader in the Old Testament during that time. And when there's no leader, people just go crazy. And whenever they go crazy, Israelites go crazy, God allowed judgment to them and they allowed enemies to invade, right? So that was happening during the time of judges. The Midianites invaded Israel because Israelites were going crazy. God, God, selects, a, God selects Gideon one of, like, as a judge to, to, to go and battle, you know, battle, wage a battle against the Midianites, the invaders. Remember the story? So Midian, God, Gideon gathers the men of Israel to fight against the Midianites. First, how, 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 many, people, how many young men came to fight for Israel? 32,000 men. Woohoo! 32,000. Pretty big number. He can do it. But God told Gideon, too many. There's too many. There's 32,000 too many. I need you to cut people. And how do you cut people? Tell the men, if, if there's any chickens out there, if there's any of you who are afraid, just go home. Right? Go home. So that's what Gideon did. Gideon said, hey, chickens, go home. If you don't want to fight this battle, if you're afraid, go home. 22,000 leave. 10,000 left. 22 chickens in, the, in Israel. Right? From 32 to 10,000. God says, too many. I want you to, to lower it. And Gideon, how do you lower it? Take the people by the river, by the, by the water, and let them drink from the water. Whoever drinks like a, like a respectable human being and like who, who does this and go, drink it with your hand, mix a, mix a little cup with your hand. By the way, that's how I brush my teeth, by the way. I use my hand as a cup. Do you guys do that too? Not just me? Anyway, right? So I can fight, right? So those guys are worthy to fight. Guys who drink like dogs, put their faces directly to the water. They're not worthy. Do you know how many, how many people left? 300! Among 10,000, 9,700 were drinking like dogs, so God sent them home. 300 men from 30,000 to 300. What is that? What's that? What's the number? Is 1%? It's 1%, right? Is that the math? Yeah, whatever, right? <laughs> like only 1% of the original numbers left. Why did God test Gideon that way? To show that the power does not come from the size of numbers. The power comes from the power of God. That's one of the reasons God allows testing, testing in your life. So that he can demonstrate his power over your life. He will not make your life easy. He will not. But he will deliver you. Over and over again, he will deliver you to, to convince you over and over again that he is mighty and that you are weak. Y'all comprende? That's the life of a Christian. It's ne- life, of, life of the person that's, ne- that's called, it's never boring. It's never boring. It's always dynamic. You feel that you're going to die, but God's going to deliver you. <gasps> God is strong. And then you feel like you're going to die again. Oh, I'm so weak, but God's going to deliver you. It's a roller coaster of a ride, but it's fantastic because God reveals his power to you. That's the purpose of testing. To reveal what you believe in, to reveal your weakness, and most importantly, to reveal his power and grace. And that's exactly what God is doing to Abraham through this test. I was like, I had a writer's block yesterday. 
right, until like 11 o'clock at night, I had a writer's block, and I had no idea. I said, Lord, I feel no passion about this passage. I, I was wrong. I feel very passionate about this passage. What's happening to Abraham? So God says, Abraham, take your son, and offer up your son, the only son that you love, and offer him as a sacrifice. So God obeys, and he takes Isaac, his son, and two of his helpers, and they go on a three-day journey. What do you think Abraham was thinking about during his three-day journey? I think there are two, two, I think there's two good, good, good hypotheses. And one's not a hypothesis, one's actually written in scripture. But one of the hypotheses, let's talk about one of the hypotheses. One of the hypotheses is Abraham was thinking about his sin when, he, when he's going up, when, when he's making that three-day journey. How do I know? So I got this, I, I lifted this from Tim Keller, who lifted that from somewhere else, someone else. So it's okay. Double plagiarism, right? This is what, this is, this is what Tim Keller and the guy that he lifted, lifted from says. In the, in the ancient culture during that time, during, the, during um, Abraham's time, right, the firstborn was the hope of every family, right? We live in a very individualistic society right now, we know. And the individualistic society is very, it's a very modern thing. Before all the ancient times, people, people were, you know, people were operating, operating based on their families, right? People were living for the success of their families. People were living for the honor of their families. People were living for the longevity of their families, right? And in that, in that ancient mindset, the firstborn was the promise, was the hope of the family living on, right? So for example, when the father dies, he would give all his possessions to the inheritance to the firstborn. Why? Because it's better for the first one person to have inherit all the possessions than divvying up the, the inheritance by, I don't know, by like, by five, right? So if I have, like, if I have a lot of money, I would rather give, to ensure the survival of my family for future generations, I'll give all my money to Caleb. Because if I split it into and give half to Caleb and half to Charlotte, my wealth is going to split into two. And if Charlotte gets married and, her, and she's divided her inheritance by two to her kids, my, the money that I have is going to be split out like exponentially. No bueno. Family needs to move on. And the only way to guarantee the family move on is to give everything to the firstborn. And the firstborn gives stipend to the, to the other siblings. Firstborn, therefore, was the hope of the future. Right? That's the common custom in ancient times. God, by the way, like, breaks this custom by choosing the lesser born, second, third, fourth born, or the first born. Right? Esau and Jacob, we know the story. David was the last son of, of, of 12 people. Joseph was not the first born. Anyway, God kind of like, abandons his practice by blessing the lesser born. But God still, the, God still uses the importance of the first born to his people. Right? And the way that, 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 that you see God's emphasis on the firstborn is, in, if you read the Old Testament, like especially Exodus and Numbers, the firstborn, unfortunately, represented, like, it, it was the firstborn, how, do, how, do I, how, how should I say this? They are, first, by the way, Firstborn, basically, God says in the Old Testament, the firstborn belongs to me, right? In the Old Testament, right, remember, when you offer up sacrifices to the Lord, it has to be the firstborn cattle. When, you, when farmers 
you know, farm, and the first fruit, fruit of the harvest belongs to the Lord. The firstborn belongs to God. And so in the Old Testament, not only does the firstborn belong to God, the firstborns are the ones that God uses to pay for the sins of the family. How do I know this? Let's look at Exodus, right? Remember Exodus? When, 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 when Israelites were going out of Egypt? Um, the last, last judgment that fell on Egypt was the angel of death, right? And what, who did the angel of death take? The firstborn male of that family. So if you are a Jew living in the time of Israel when the Exodus was happening, if you didn't slaughter a lamb and put the blood of the lamb on your doorpost of your house, the firstborn of the Jewish family would also be taken. This kind of shows the firstborn represented, because the firstborn belonged to God, the firstborn was also a sin offering to God to pay for the sins of their family. At least that's what the ancient Jewish scholars are showing. So it is very possible. When Abraham was taking a three-day journey, when Abraham, when God says to lift up, Abraham, lift up Isaac as an offering, as a burnt offering, Abraham is thinking, I have to lift up Isaac because of my sins and my family's sin. I finally have to pay for my sins. And my son has to pay that price. Abraham wasn't a nice man, right? Remember Abraham? Right? Whenever things got dangerous, he first, the first thing he did was sell, sell his wife. Remember how he treated Hagar? Was I here when Pastor... No, I was away. Where was I? I was somewhere. Pastor Ujin spoke about it. Where was I? I wasn't here. Okay. Wait, Pastor Ujin talked about Hagar, the way Sarah treated Hagar. I hope he did... I wasn't here, but I hope, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure he did a good job. But if you actually, actually think about what Abraham and Sarah did to Hagar, it is despicable. They used Hagar, and they threw her away. They threw away another human being. And Abraham was okay with it. The sins that they committed were despicable. And that's only the sin in the promised land. Who knows what sin he committed for, before, for, the, for, for the first seven years of his life? As Abraham was going through that journey, he all, maybe perhaps all the sins that he committed was flashing through his head. And maybe he's thinking, it's right that my son has to die. Because if my son has to, because my, the sins that I committed, my wife has committed, it's great. To foster this point. See, when you understand the sin that you committed, you, need, you want some, somehow to pay for it. You have a desire to somehow pay for it. I'll give you an example. I think I told you this during my uh, Good Friday sermon. So, but I'll tell it again. Scott Souls is a pastor in Nashville, Tennessee. Right? He, 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 uh, he, he's a good-sized church. He's a good pastor, faithful pastor. Pa- not a mega church, but a good-sized church pastoring faithfully to a local congregation. But among his congregation, there was this one guy who's just the pain on his side. One guy who disagrees with him all the time. One guy who just calls him out all the time. One guy who's causing drama all the time. So much church drama is happening because of that one guy. And finally, 
you know, like, he's, he's not, he's, Gus was a nice guy, so he never really criticized the guy in public. And so one night, him and his wife were, were, went on date night, right? And during date night, you know, as all pastors do during date night, we complain about our congregation members, right? I don't. I say to my wife, I love you guys all the time. Right. Anyway, in that dinner, Scott Soule says he started to rant about that guy to his wife. Right? How, how much of a pain he is. It's all the problems that he's causing. He started, like, gossiping about slandering that guy. Not in a bad way. Scott's was a nice guy. But just complaining. And his wife looked at him and said, you know you're sinning, right? <gasps> By the way, guys, that's the guy, that's the type of woman that you marry, calling you out on your sins. Not nagging you, but gently reminding you what you're, when you're sinning. When his wife, when his wife, rebuked him, he realized he is taking this beautiful creation that God has made and he is just dragging this guy through the dirt. He's taking this glorious creation and he's dragging this creation through the dirt. He said, I am no different from a pornographer where a pornographer takes this beautiful creation of God and takes that person to the dirt. He said he felt he went to deep depression. Depression that lasted for weeks. He felt so bad about what he did. He said, I, I don't think I'm called to the ministry. He loved being a pastor. But because he felt so horrible at what he did, he wanted to, he wanted to pay the price for it. He wanted to quit. You see how that works? When God truly convicts you of your sins, you realize that you somehow need to pay for it. Maybe we don't feel guilty about our sins enough, but when we actually see the repercussions of our sins, there's something in you that says, I need to do something about this. I need to somehow to pay for this. I, this is not, I, I just can't live with this guilt. Somehow I need to pay for it. That's what Scott Saul is doing. He wanted to pay for his sins by quitting the ministry. When you are feeling convicted of your sins and then you don't want to do anything about it, oh, I'm a sinner. Okay, we're all sinners, right? I don't think you understand the magnitude of your sins. But if you want to do something about it, I think that's something that, that's you realizing what, you're, what you have done. And that's exactly what Abraham is going through in his mind on his journey to, he said, on his journey to sacrifice Isaac. Maybe he's thinking, I'm a horrible, my family did such a horrible, horrible thing. My family, me, introduced sin to Abimelech and his kingdom. I was, I, was, I was agent zero. I was the contaminant. I contaminated the hearts of the people in Abimelech's kingdom like last week. Therefore, I need to pay. Someone needs to pay. And if God says, and if God has taken away my son to pay for my sins, then I think God is just. Maybe that's what he's thinking on his way sacrifice Isaac. Second thing that Abraham was thinking, and we know this because Hebrews tells us so, Abraham was also thinking, God is going to honor his promise. Let's read, let's, where is it? Let's read Hebrews chapter 11, 11 verse 17. 
Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. It says, By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promise was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God has said to him, It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead and so, in a matter of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. What is the writer of Hebrews saying? On his way to sacrifice Isaac, Abraham believed in the promises of God. Remember, God promised Abraham over and over and over again in Genesis 12, Genesis 13, Genesis 15, over and over and over again. God makes a promise to Abraham. Abraham, I will bless you and the world through your, through your natural-born son. God promises over and over and over again. Remember when God says, split those animals into pieces, and Abraham split those animals into pieces, and God walked through those pieces? He's saying, if I do not bless you and your offspring, I will, be, I will destroy myself. God makes that oath to Abraham. And Abraham's thinking, God, will some, God promised that he's going to bless the world through Isaac. Therefore, I believe that he will. Even though I may have to kill Isaac, Maybe I believe that God is somehow going to resurrect Isaac and honor his promise. God is going to honor his promise. So for three days, Abraham's going back and forth, back and forth. I deserve my sins. I deserve judgment. But I also know God is gracious and he will fulfill his promise. You see what I'm trying to do here? What am I trying to do here? I'm trying to pull the Jesus out of it, right? That's what is happening in Abraham's mind as he's going through sacrifice Isaac. God is revealing Abraham's sin to Abraham, but also God is revealing his promises to Abraham. That's what this test is revealing. He makes it to Mount Moriah, the area of Moriah. Not Moriah, right? Moriah, Moriah, right? And he takes, he, he, he tells the two guys to stay behind, and he and Isaac goes up the mountain, right? And he gives the wood for the burnt offering for Isaac to take. Can you believe that? He gives the wood that's going to burn him to Isaac. And Isaac has to carry the wood that's going to burn him. Abraham takes the knife, right, and the fire, and they go up. And Isaac looks at Abraham and goes, Father, yes, my son. We have the wood, we have the fire. Where is the lamb? What do you think Abraham was thinking? Where is the lamb? God will provide the lamb, my son. Because I think in that moment, Abraham still hoped that somehow, someway, God's going to provide. So he lays Abraham, Isaac down the altar and he is about to plunge a knife through his son. Right? And God stops him. He says, Abraham, Abraham, do not lay a hand on your son. And Abraham looked up and there was a ram whose horn got caught in a thicket. Abraham takes the ram that God has provided, slaughters it as a burnt offering. 
burnt offering to, 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 to pay for his sins went through the ram. And the promise that God made through Isaac, God, God honors the promise that he makes, makes through Isaac. But let's think about this. Do you think the ram is enough to pay for the sins that Abraham committed? Abraham did a horrible, horrible thing. Do you think killing an animal is enough to reconcile Abraham's sins? Do you even think killing his own son is enough to cure of Abraham and his sins? It's not. Then why did God allow Abraham to go through this? Once again, the purpose of the test is to reveal. And God allowed Abraham to go through this so that God will reveal to Abraham and to the entire world what God will do in 2,000 years later at the same place. 2,000 years later, in the same area of Moriah, Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross. The same area. Just like Isaac took his own you know, wood to sacrifice himself, Jesus carried his own cross up that mountain. Just as Isaac was Abraham's only beloved son, Jesus was God's only begotten son. Just as Abraham was willing to offer up the his own son as sacrifice as a burnt offering, God the Father was, was offering the world the death of his son as a sacrifice for their sins. But the difference is, rather than stopping, just like, unlike the difference is, God stopped Abraham from plunging, going through with it, from killing his own son. God did not stop himself from killing his own son. The instrument of wrath and destruction and death pierced through Jesus Christ. Why? Because to pay for the sins that we've committed. And God raised Jesus on the third day to justify, our, justify us as, as children of God and to give us new life. You see, Abraham's testing was not just about Abraham. It is through this testing God is revealing to the world what he will do in Jesus Christ. God stopped Abraham from going through with it. God went through with it. Destroyed his son for you and for me. The great revelation in Abram's testing is the revelation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When this revelation becomes a personal testimony to your heart, it will change you. When you finally understand, when God makes a personal revelation to you that what Jesus has done for you, he did it for you, and you, he did it for you. When you personally understand that, it will redefine your humanity. You'll become more courageous. You'll become more kind. It's, it's crazy. Look, like when I was, when a, a couple of years ago, I was terrified of getting fired. You know, like you, you, 
Oh, like every time I preach, I preached about me almost getting fired. Remember those times where I preached about how I'm, I think I'm going to get fired? I, I said that a lot because I was deathly afraid. But now I'm not so afraid. Hey, don't fire me, guys, listening to this. But the more that Jesus Christ reveals himself to me, the more I realize the job isn't, it, it, it doesn't, it, it's not, I'm not going to die if I don't have it. Because I have him. Also, as I was preparing for the sermon, and I was, as I was praying at 1 a.m., as I always do, rocking in my rocking chair, as I was meditating upon the gospel of Jesus Christ, you know what I realized? I was, I'm not a very kind man to my wife. I mean, I'm not a jerk, right? But I'm not as kind as I should be. God's kindness is shining forth through Jesus Christ on the cross, and I haven't shown that kindness as much as I should to my wife. And I felt so horrible about it. And I go, oh, I made my wife miserable because I wasn't so kind. But because Christ has shown me kindness, I want now to be a kinder man to my wife. You see how that works? It transforms you. Being persuaded by the gospel of Jesus Christ, it redefines you as a human being. It really, really does. You start to be assured of the things hoped for, and you start to become convicted of things unseen. It really does happen to you. Every test that you ever go through, I'm telling you this, it is so that God will reveal Jesus Christ to you. Period. That's it. He takes you through the highs and lows of life so that He will reveal Jesus Christ to you. That's it. How do you know? Romans chapter 8. God works for the good of all things. God, God, what does it say? God works good for the all things for the, those who call them, something like that. What that basically means is God's going to use everything in your life, if you're called by God, to reveal Jesus Christ to you. That's what that verse means. He works out all things so that Jesus Christ will be revealed to you. Every test is that, every purpose of every test is that, that alone. Are you going through tests today? What is your test? Is it, I don't know, lack of employment, stinky jobs, I don't know, spouse, problematic spouses, whatever it is, rejoice. He's allowing you to go through it because at the end of that testing, Jesus Christ will be personally be revealed to you. So your attitude right now as you go through that test is to say, through this, reveal Jesus Christ. And you know what? He really will. He absolutely will. And by doing that, he will transform you. Let us pray.